you will notice uh, your words for this evening that you're listening for there in the bulletin in their normal place. The words you're listening for are the words cost and cross, and cry, mercy, grace, faith, and salvation. Those are your words this evening. Well, you probably uh, wouldn't guess if I asked, but I do want to begin with a question tonight. Surprise, surprise. That question is this, have you ever had to give up something? Have you ever had to give up something that you really, really loved or liked? Um, Something that you really wanted? Uh, Something that you were looking forward to? Uh, Maybe something you dreamed of, uh, something that you had planned. It it could be a person, it could be a group of people, it could be a possession, some type of material possession, it could be a trip of some kind, it could be a short-term or long-term goal. And giving it up may have been the result of circumstances that were out of your control, Or it may have been the result of a decision that you had to make. It may have been one person or another, but it couldn't couldn't be both. It may have been um, it may have been one thing or another, but couldn't be both. It could be one dream or another, or one plan or another, but it couldn't be both of them. And and making and after making the choice that you had to make or were forced into, you felt this deep sense of loss. It deeply troubled you uh, within your heart and within your mind. And more than likely, in some instances, you probably came to realize that what you gained right, was better than what you had to give up, and so there's no regret. But yet there are other times, other instances, or there have been moments when you look back and and you've thought to yourself that maybe you would have been better off with that thing you gave up rather than what you have presently. You would have been better off with what you let go of rather than what you kept. And, and, And there's this sense of doubt inside as a result, like questions running through your mind and maybe even a little regret for the choice that you made. Well, in our passage tonight, Jesus says something that we all need to hear and be reminded of. We've just heard Grant read uh, from Luke 18 And we need to be reminded of this on a regular basis, and that is this. While the cost of following Jesus is great, what we receive is greater than the cost. What we gain is far greater than what we lost or what we gave up, no matter what it was or what it is. Everything pales in comparison to what we receive when we choose to follow Jesus. And I know we 
we battle with that sometimes in our minds, right? We, we all experience those moments of doubt when we hear that or when we experience that. We've all experienced those, those moments when we question whether following Jesus is worth it. And fortunately, in our passage tonight, we also hear and are reminded of something that will help us in those moments as well. And what we're going to hear and what we're reminded of is that, and, and that fact that we should always consider is that what we receive costs us exponentially less than what it cost Jesus to provide it. In other words, he who calls us to forsake all for him is not asking us to do something that he himself was not willing to do and he himself has not done by forsaking all for us. Our passage tonight breaks down into three points. We want to look first at the cost of following. We want to look at the cross of Christ. And then finally, we'll look at the cry of faith. The cost of following, the cross of Christ, and the cry of faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Uh, Father, by your Spirit and by your grace, would you grant power to the preaching of your word this evening? Would you give us all ears to hear and eyes to see that we might appraise and apprehend the truth of the gospel? Would you awaken our attention and would you convict us and challenge us? And then we ask that you would come along then and, and comfort us and encourage us, refresh us. I'm weak and needy to this task to which you've called me. And so I'm in need of your grace and your support and your spirit to fill me, and I ask that that would in fact be so. My desire is to be a pure channel of your grace this evening and do something good for your people. So would you enable me to do that? And I pray all these things in Christ's name for the sake of his church. Amen. And amen. Well, if you've been with us, and even if you haven't been with us, Jesus has just finished answering a couple of questions. He answered the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life prior to this passage in Luke 18? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the second question was, who can be saved? And he answered, if you remember, he answered matter-of-factly, there is nothing we can do to earn or merit eternal life, or to earn or merit salvation. The kingdom can only be received by those who aren't trusting in themselves for their salvation and who aren't relying upon their material possessions and wealth for their satisfaction. It can only be received by those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy and their inability to save themselves, their helplessness and their dependence upon the Lord to do what they cannot do for themselves. 
It can only be received with humble hearts, with open hands. And of course, the rich young ruler, the rich ruler that we saw last week, he was unable to do that, right? He, had, he was the one that asked the first question, and he left sad because he was unable to do what the Lord said he must do. That, that's not to say that God couldn't change his heart, right? All things are possible with God, even though things are impossible with man. But left to himself, without the Lord's intervention on his behalf, he was unable to inherit eternal life. A camel would have had a better chance of passing through an eye of a needle than for him to earn his salvation, which meant it wasn't going to happen. And it wasn't going to happen in his case because he loved himself and he loved his things. He loved his money. He loved his possessions more than he loved the Lord. And Luke says, in our passage tonight, Luke says that Peter was listening. He doesn't actually say Peter was listening, but we know based on the fact that Luke says Peter interjected in the midst of the conversation that he was listening to what was going on, as more than likely others were as well. And Peter says something interesting. He says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And it could appear as if Peter had missed the whole point. It it could be that Peter was wanting Jesus to affirm that he and the others had done uh, enough, right? He could have missed the point and thought, Jesus, you know, we've done enough, right? He may not have done enough, but we've done enough, right? But I don't think that's what he, I don't think that's what he's doing, I think Peter is simply seeking assurance that they had done what he had failed or the rich ruler had failed to do. In other words, he's not saying or asking, did we do enough? He's asking, did we do the right thing? I think he's asking if they had done what Jesus had asked the rich ruler to do and what he asks all of those who will follow him to do. I hear Peter saying this, we've done that, right? We've we've done what you asked him to do. We've given up everything to follow you. We've left our families. We've left our livelihoods. We've abandoned our plans. We've jeopardized our futures to follow you. We've expressed our hope and our trust We've expressed where our hope and trust lies, right? And Jesus looks at not only Peter but the others and says, and because you have, you need to hold on to the truth. You need to hold on to the truth that everyone who leaves family, everyone who leaves their homes and leaves their livelihoods and abandons their plans and forsakes their dreams and desires, and to use Paul's language, counts everything as loss and as rubbish in order to gain me, will not be disappointed. They will not be disappointed. Even if you're called to give of your very life, you will not regret your choice. He says, Peter, you will receive far more than you give then you give up both in this life and in the life to come. Those who have forsaken all for me will be rewarded 
both now and forever, in the already and the not yet. What you gain will far outweigh what you give up. And notice there are no exceptions. There are no qualifiers attached. It is an unconditional promise. There is no one who forsakes all who will not receive many times more. If we put that in positive terms, everyone who forsakes all will receive many times more. And beloved, this is the promise. I believe this is the promise our brothers and sisters who were once Muslim counted on when they chose to follow Christ and were baptized. I believe this is the promise our brothers and sisters, our Chinese brothers and sisters counted on when they chose to follow Christ and were baptized. This is the promise of any of our brothers and sisters who were, who were living in countries and were a part of families who were, who were hostile to the gospel when they chose to follow Christ and were baptized. They all knew they would lose their families. They all knew they would lose their livelihoods. They knew they would lose their freedom and possibly lose their very lives for professing Christ. But they knew and were hanging on and banking on the promise that what Jesus said was true and that what they would receive would be far, far greater than anything they would give up or lose. This is also the promise of that many of our, if not all of our missionaries count on when they choose to sell all that they belong and all that, all that they own and all that belongs to them and they leave their family and leave their friends and, and the comforts of home to move around the world, sometimes into hostile environments. And they do so for the sake of the gospel. And while you and I, we, we aren't required to take vows or, or even to uh, we're not even asked to take vows of poverty. Uh, we, aren't, we aren't asked to sell all that we own. And while we aren't facing those extreme levels of persecution that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing, and we, and we as of right now, aren't being asked to give of our lives or lay down our lives or put our lives on the line, we do have costs to weigh in terms of relationships, in terms of livelihoods, in terms of loyalties, in terms of prestige and power and position. We have costs to weigh in terms of reputations and our influence. We have costs to weigh in terms of things that we want and believe that we need and even love and want to hold on to. We have cost to weigh, and even in terms of certain, certain besetting sins. And the bottom line is, we struggle, do we not? We struggle to let go of everything. And we struggle to let go of everything because our desire to keep things is greater than our desire to forsake things. And that's because we, we have to be honest that we don't 
believe the promise that if we do, we will receive many more times that which we give up. So I want us to take just a minute and I want to remind us of that which we gain. What is it that we gain? And this isn't going to be an exhaustive list, but I think it will get us started into pondering these things. In this life, when we forsake our sin and when we forsake our guilt and our shame and our fear and our hatred and malice, we receive forgiveness and rest and reconciliation and peace and joy and freedom and hope. When we're willing to let our family and friends go and and hold them with open hands, we receive everlasting friendships and relationships, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers of the faith. When we forsake monetary gain and wealth, We receive, as we've heard in this gospel, we receive treasure that's stored up in heaven that moth and rust cannot destroy. And in the life to come, we will ultimately experience a a life free of sin and free of suffering, freeness or free of sadness, a life that's full and complete, a life lacking in absolutely nothing. And most important of all, most important of all, we receive Christ both now and forevermore. Listen to these words from J.C. Ryle. Many times more means the believer shall find in Christ a full equivalent of everything that he, lo- uh, that he is obliged to give up for Christ's sake. In short, the Lord Jesus Christ shall become more to him than property or relatives or friends. If we, if we were to lose our family and friends, family or friends, Jesus, Jesus is our friend and brother. If we were to lose our homes, Jesus is our refuge, right? He is our strength. He's, he's our shelter in the midst of the storms of life. If we were to lose all that we own or possess, Jesus is our pearl of great price. And if we lose our lives ourselves, the Apostle Paul says that we, though absent for the body, are immediately present with the Lord. So in all so when all is said and done, this promise, not only um, this, this promise that Jesus makes here doesn't just lead us to trust Him to take care of and supply uh, our, or, or to meet our every need. Even more important, it tells us that He Himself is what we need and who we gain. 
Our needs are supplied through Him, but our needs are supplied by Him. And He is our all in all. But we have to ask ourselves, when we think of that, we have to ask ourselves, okay, but how is that possible? What makes that even a possibility? What's the foundation for that promise? And the answer is the cross of Christ. Look at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. This is the seventh time in the gospel that Jesus has referred to the purpose of his journey to Jerusalem that he's making. We're actually making a shift tonight as we get closer to Jerusalem in a few weeks. And with it being just around the corner as we're going to see, he chose to expand upon what he's already been saying or what he said on those six previous occasions. Not only did this journey have a purpose, but he said this purpose was to accomplish the predetermined plan of God. And it was a plan, it was a predetermined plan that the prophets, like Isaiah that we read from earlier, but it was like, it was um, a plan that those prophets had been speaking about hundreds of years prior. We've said this over and over, you could probably recite it with me. He is the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah, the suffering, suffering servant of the Lord who would lead His people, lead the people of God out of bondage and into freedom. And He was going to ascend the throne of David. But to do so, to take His rightful place, He would have to suffer, He would have to be mocked, He would have to be disgraced, He would have to be humiliated, He would have to be scourged, He would have to be beaten, and then He would have to be murdered. And then he would be placed in a grave. But on the third day, he would rise again from the grave. And we know that through his death and resurrection, we know throughout the Scriptures that he would not only, through his death and resurrection, defeat the enemies of sin and death, but Satan as well. It was through him willingly laying down his life on behalf of those who could not do for themselves what needed to be done. It was him laying down himself, uh, himself in obedience and submission to the will of the Father that he would secure the foundation of this promise made in verse 30. It was the cross of Christ that secured and granted and fulfilled that promise. It was by way of the cross in which he set everything aside, forsaking all for those who would be willing to forsake all for him. So with that in the forefront of our minds, I want us to, I want us to listen to these words. When we consider the cross, listen to these words from Philip Ryken. He says this, once you make a total life commitment to Christ, there are certain commands you are to obey, certain pleasures you are to choose to forego, certain sacrifices you are compelled to make. 
And sometimes, he says, it's so hard to follow Jesus that it is tempting to wonder whether it is really worth all the trouble. Is it worth it to follow Jesus when doing the right thing makes you unpopular at school? Or when people who do not have the same moral scruples are getting ahead of you in business? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when serving God takes you away from your family? Or when you have to say no to a romantic relationship that is hindering your growth and godliness? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when sinners seem to have all the fun? Or when what God wants for you is not what you want for you? This is the question, he says, posed by every hard obedience. Is Jesus worth it or not? And quite honestly, the only answer is yes. The only answer is yes when we consider what He has done for us. As I mentioned in the introduction, He who calls us to forsake all for Him isn't calling us to do something that He hasn't been willing to do or that He hasn't done already Himself in forsaking all for us. So when we consider our sin and we consider our guilt, and then we consider His grace that's been extended to us through His cross where mercy and wrath met, our natural response should be a willingness to forsake all for Him out of gratitude for what He has done for us. Our forsaking all doesn't in no way earns or merits our salvation, as Aaron said earlier. Forsaking all, though, is the right response that springs forth from an understanding of the grace that is ours in Him. But notice verse 34. It says, but Luke says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Seven times Jesus has gone down this road, speaking of that which was ahead, and seven times they've missed it. They couldn't get their heads around it, and there are a couple things that are going on here. There are a couple things at work in, in terms of inhibiting their understanding, and the first is their own in, inability to make sense of it all. We've said this before, right? They're, they can't conceive of the Messiah suffering. This is a completely different picture than they had in mind. They couldn't imagine the servant of the Lord conquering their enemies through suffering or through his death. It didn't make sense. It didn't add up, and it wasn't what they had been anticipating, and therefore they just they can't get their heads around it. But there's something else going on here as well. They were being hindered from understanding it all. The, the phrase was hidden from them is actually what's called a divine passive, which means it's a verb in, in the passive voice, but there's no one is specifically, um, the verb isn't attributed really to any, anybody. 
And therefore, we know that it's attributed to God. God God himself was hiding it from him. And the best explanation that we have for this inhibiting of their understanding is, remember, this is all a part of the predetermined plan of God. And so apparently, it wasn't time for that plan to be revealed in its fullness. There were other things that needed to take place. There were other things that the Lord was waiting on before he revealed the truth to them, before they could fully comprehend it. And it wouldn't be actually until after the resurrection where the lights would go off and God would open their minds to the Scriptures. And so let me ask, do you understand this evening, do you understand and grasp what Jesus is saying in our passage tonight? And if so, we need to thank the Lord. We need to thank God that He has enlightened our eyes and our ears to the truth. He's, he's enlightened our hearts. Or are you struggling to understand? Are you struggling and wrestling? Is there some sort of doubt in regards to the Lord or in regards to the gospel? Are you struggling tonight with particular doctrines of our faith? Are you struggling with uh, the doctrine of sin or the doctrine of justification by faith or uh, the doctrine of the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ or the kingdom or judgment? If so, the best place to go is to the Lord. To ask Him for the eyes and ears of faith to see and hear His Word. To understand His Word. He alone can illuminate the truth of the Scriptures, right? Nothing is impossible with God. What is impossible for us is not impossible for Him. And that brings us to our final point, the cry of faith. You see, the idea of receiving the kingdom, the idea of receiving our salvation, the idea of receiving eternal life is all well and good, but the important question that that comes uh, to our minds when we're thinking about these things is how is it received? If it's to be received, how do we do that? How do we receive the kingdom? How do we receive our salvation? And that answer, the answer to that question is found in our next story. The answer is we receive it by faith. Look at verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were, who were in the crowd in front of him rebuked him and telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. The language is your faith has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. We know nothing about this man and what caused his blindness. Absolutely nothing. But what we do know is at some point along the line, prior to this occasion, someone had told him about Jesus. Jesus. 
Because when he hears the crowd and asks what's going on, someone tells him Jesus is coming, and he cannot contain himself. What we also know is that he believes he believes something about Jesus that the crowd doesn't. They, they're believing in someone different. Because when he asks what's going on, they answer, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. But he doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. He doesn't. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those in the crowd were actually blind to who he really was. And the blind man actually saw him for who he really was, the Messiah. And the picture is clear, pun intended. This blind man could actually see his own condition, his own sinfulness. He could see his need. He could see his inability to do anything about it himself. And therefore, he, he could see his hopeless state. And he could also see the only one who could help. And nothing and no one was going to get in his way of seeking that help. He was not going to be denied. He was not going to be hindered no, hindered, no matter how loud or strong the opposition. He was going to be louder and stronger. He was not going to be denied. He was not going to be persuaded to give up. And as he cried out for mercy, Christ responded. The man wanted his sight. And Jesus gave it to him. Gave him much more than that. But he gave him a sight. Immediately, right, without hesitation, instantaneously, the Son of God spoke. And the man was healed by that authoritative and powerful word. And his healing was received through the instrument or conduit of faith. He had knowledge of Jesus. He believed in Jesus. He rested in and relied upon Jesus. And after receiving his sight, again, actually the language is after being saved, he responded in gratitude by glorifying God. And everyone who was watching joined him. Did the same thing, praising God. And this is a vivid, vivid picture of salvation. Listen to the answer to question 72 of the larger catechism. The question asks, what is justifying faith? And the answer is, justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he, the sinner, being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only assents to the truth, of the promise of the gospel, but receives 
and rests upon Christ as his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. In other words, faith is a gracious gift. It's a gracious gift through which Christ justifies and saves sinners that involves our our heads and our hearts and our wills. It involves knowing, it involves believing, it involves relying upon and resting in the Lord Jesus who lived, died, and rose again from the dead according to the Scriptures on behalf of sinners like you and like me. The Gospel. In the words of Chad Van Dixhorn, faith does not simply look to promises, nor does faith look to the blessings that Christ brings to Christians, such as forgiveness of sin or the gift of righteousness. No, he says, faith looks to Jesus Christ himself. The good news is Jesus himself. It is through our Savior that our blessings flow. And of course, this faith yields the fruit of worship. It yields the fruit of obedience that sprouts from the soil, to go back in our gospel, springs forth from the soil of a heart of gratitude. So let me ask, do you see your sin? Do you tonight see your need? Do you see your spiritual bankruptcy and your inability to save yourself, to reconcile yourself to a holy God? Do you see the one or do you see Jesus as the only one who can help? Have you rested and relied upon Him alone for your salvation? Do you continue to rely upon and rest in Him alone for your salvation? You know, those who are Christians, I'm sorry, for those of you who may may not be Christians, you've come in this evening and you may be wondering what in the world's going on. What, What are these folks doing? And the answer is Jesus, the Son of David, is here. He's here by His Spirit. And He's in the midst of His people who have gathered. He has gathered to worship. And my advice would be that you would do well not to allow Him to pass you by. Call out to Him. Acknowledge and repent of your sin and turn to Him. Cry to Him to have mercy on your soul. Don't let any fear or insecurity or anxiety hold you back. Ask the Lord to forgive you and to cleanse you of your sin, to reconcile you, to wash away your guilt and your shame. Trust Him. Throw yourself upon Him. Receive Him. And He Himself promises you that you will receive far more than you give up. For those who are Christians, 
couple of questions for you as well as we close. Questions, of course, with the help of Pastor Riken. He says, do you experience joy in the worship of God? Are you keeping the commandments of Christ? Does your life point other people to Jesus and makes them want to follow Him too? If we say we're trusting in Jesus, our faith should be evident in the way we worship, in the way we witness, and in the way we live. May that be so. Let's pray.